0: Now, I would like to wrap up this series on our fathers today. It's actually getting quite long. There's been a sub-theme running through this because it's there in the Scriptures and keeps coming up over and over and over again as we've studied Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, (coughs) Joseph, and now Ephraim. And that is that God, to each of those men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob particularly, and eventually even to Joseph, it said, the land where you are is the land I will give your seed. And when you take that at face value, then wherever the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph are today, has to be the land that we have inherited. Particularly then, when you understand that the United States is Ephraim, not Manasseh, and does have the double fruit, the double blessing, more so than any other nation of Israel, then God is working with the firstborn. So we've been over that information. We've encountered it several times as we've gone through this series. And maybe we have trouble believing that. Maybe we have trouble believing this is the original promised land. Maybe we have trouble believing God, and the Bible itself. Now, that would be sad if it were the case, but I'm going to take a little bit different direction for a few minutes here and examine something else, because if you don't believe God and his word, then maybe you'll believe others. Now, I understand it is an overwhelming concept at first that the Middle East was not the original cradle of civilization. The Garden of Eden was not there, and that it was over here. When you say that, people immediately say, no way, that couldn't be. Well, that's been ingrained in us from childhood, that the Middle East and that Jerusalem is the Holy Land. So to grasp that concept is beyond our imagination. And as has been said, what you're not up on, you're down on. We automatically ignore or discriminate against or have a negative approach to something that perhaps is new to our consciousness or something that sounds so overwhelmingly bizarre or out of left field. That is our human nature. That is the way our minds work. So to try to grasp something like this, I understand, is very, very difficult. Now when I first encountered the idea that Jerusalem was here, it didn't strike me as that bizarre for one reason only. And that is that I already understood that Zion is here. I already understood part of the geology of this area. I had moved here because of that understanding, and so had you. So for some of us, it wasn't that great a leap. But just imagine... If you walk up to somebody on the street, and I mean church members in whatever group they might be in, and say, did you realize that Jerusalem is over in the United States? See ya. Where did you come from? So I understand the barriers that are there. This magazine is is entitled Biblical Archaeology Review. It's been around for quite some time. This particular issue is uh, March-April of 2000. I have another one from 1996. And in here, (coughs) they discuss a controversy that the archaeologists are having. The first article from 1996 introduced the topic, and it's written in, the kind of language that archaeologists and and scholars use, and not much in layman's language, so it's a little difficult to to go through for the average person, including me, and fully understand from that article what they're talking about. But this article is a little more open, and it shows two points of view. They have what they call the minimalists and the maximists. And those are highfalutin words for those who minimize everything in the Bible as history and those who would maximize everything in the Bible as history, okay? Those who give no credit to the Bible as history and those who claim that the Bible is a true history of Israel. It is becoming fairly common today among archaeologists to deny the bible is history. Their research, their digging, and I'm talking about major archaeologists, not just some unknown fellow out there digging around with a shovel. They're beginning to say that the bible simply does not fit the archaeology of the Middle East. They cannot find evidence of Israel there. <clears throat> so the minimalists take that view. I'm going to read here, is the Bible historically reliable? For many believers, it's a shocking question, and it is. For many, uh, for many scholars, it is a naive question, because they have examined everything over there that has been turned up so far. There was a time within memory when the dominant academic view was not far removed from popular perceptions. Adam and Eve and Noah's Ark may have been beyond the reach of historical inquiry, but everything else in the Bible was thought by scholars to accord well with what was known about the ancient Near East in general, if not in detail. That view no longer holds. And debate now rages over whether the 10th century kings David and Solomon, never mind Abraham and Moses, were real or merely glorious mythic figures. Evidence of them is not to be found. It just simply isn't there, and that's why this is coming. In the pages that follow, Philip Davies argues, he's an archaeologist, that the two sides are not that far apart. Now, that is an interesting statement. Those who would minimize the Bible and those who would maximize its story are not that far apart. And we'll know in a minute why he said that. That view no longer holds and debate now rages over whether the 10th century kings, David and Solomon, never mind Abraham and Moses, were real or mythic. In the pages that follow, he argues that the two sides are not far apart. Yes, they are. Yes, they are, counters William Deaver, charging that the two sides look at the Bible very differently. Now, understand that all people, generally speaking, would like to discredit the Bible. And some archaeologists are no different than that. They would like to discredit the Bible. So there is that side of the issue. So I'm not going to spend much time here uh, with Philip Davies because he's trying to show that the Bible and archaeology simply do not fit together. <clears throat> they had a symposium, <clears throat> conference. And it said that at the conferences, no speaker defended the historicity of the patriarchal narratives in Genesis. They didn't even try to make the Bible sound like it fit, in other words, okay? And there's quite a few things in here that he says, from the minimus viewpoint, that there's nothing before 1200 B.C. that shows any Israelite presence in the Middle East, Nothing before 1200 B.C. They've turned up nothing. Everything that they found is since then. Uh, no, no evidence of Noah, no evidence of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, <coughs> no evidence of anything until 1200 B.C. And in the 10th century, uh, David and Solomon, they found very little either. They do find a people who migrated into that area around 1200 BC. But they affirm that they were not Egypt, from Egypt, that they did not have any of the things or the pottery or the trinkets or gewgaws or anything in their culture or their possessions that indicated they came from Egypt. So was this a people moving in after the captivity from Egypt or not is the question there. And they say that nothing argues that that would be the case. On the archaeological side, the people we may now identify as historical Israel are generally agreed to have emerged at the beginning of the Iron Age, about 1200 B.C., and to have been indigenous to Palestine. All right, let's go on from there, because these are people who are trying to show that the Bible doesn't fit, okay? Now, here's another article by William Beaver, and he is a maximist. He is one who will do all he can to try to show that history in the Bible is credible, and that it fits the archaeology of that area. I remember the comment I made at the beginning where he said there's not much difference between the minimalist and the maximist. This article bears that out. Now, while they don't like each other and they argue with one another, we'll find that their conclusions are very much the same. He asked if we have signs of the Israelites. He says, small agricultural villages, about 300 of them, sprang up throughout the central hill country of Canaan during the late 13th to 11th century BCE, from almost 1200 up to 1100. The villages were new. Now, this is the maximist. This is the one that believes in the Bible as history as much as he can, being an archaeologist. They were new. Few, if any maybe none, were founded on the ruins of earlier sites and were located in sparsely populated areas removed from Canaanite urban centers. The population boom that filled these villages over the course of 200 years, from about 1200 B.C. to 1000 B.C., points to more than natural increase. People must have migrated to these settlements with the intent of occupying and populating them. A scenario, writes William Beaver, that accords well with biblical accounts of the emergence of the ancient Israelites in the central hill country of Canaan. So he says these must have been Israelites moving into the area, okay? New villages, nothing below in, in the formation to indicate that it was anything that had been there before. Now notice that he starts around 1200 B.C., the same time that the minimalists did. He does not even try to show us anything that indicates that there was an Israelite presence in the Middle East before 1200 BC. Nothing. The evidence simply is not there for either party to use. Nothing. For Deaver, the evidence of the villages and houses demonstrates that archaeology can play a role in identifying the ancient Israel, Israelites or their direct predecessors. It is not, as some academic revisionists claim, mute. In other words, he thinks he can prove there are Israelites there from 1200 B.C. forward. So the whole argument, really, between these peoples is the area of 1200 to 1000 B.C. That's, it. That's the time they're arguing about. Because they all say that there's no evidence of Israel Before that, now this man brings up pig bones. Now, to you and me, that might sound strange. But Israel, wherever they were, did not raise pigs to eat. And that goes all the way back to to Adam and to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those people because the clean and unclean unclean was established at creation. So in all these Bronze Age times, which were prior to 1200 BC, when they unearthed the villages and towns that were there, they find pig bones everywhere because the Gentiles ate pigs. And pigs were pretty much over the earth because they're easy to raise and uh, they'll eat anything and they taste good. But in these villages from 1200 B.C. on, there's an almost total absence of pig bones. So indeed, I think they're right. Those villages do represent a people moving into the area who did not eat pork. So, who could that be other than Israelites? Because all other cultures eat pork. Let's see, he says there was no central authority, there were not large cities, just small agricultural villages is what they're finding, no great urban areas where a king would have ruled. And they did not find either uh, temples or that type of thing says, we have no clear archaeological evidence of Israelite religion and cult before the monarchy in the 9th and 10th centuries BCE. That would be the time of David and Solomon and so on. There's nothing there prior to that. Let's see. They have, in Egyptian records, they found something about 1200 B.C. that indicates a people named Israel, 1200 B.C. And that's pretty much it. Now I find it very interesting that when you examine the history of the southwestern United States and you go to any of the cliff dwellings and ruins around the area here in the Four Corners region, they will tell you about the Anasazis. You've probably visited some of those sites. I have. And they'll say that these people mysteriously disappeared around 12 to 1300 B.C. They just disappeared. And in all the archaeology that has been conducted in this area, they've not been able to find evidence of war, you know, caved-in skulls and that type of thing. There's no record of a particularly severe drought. The people just disappeared, and it's a question in their minds. What happened? Why did they just disappear? No evidence of disease, like smallpox or that type of thing. They just went away. Now, I've had a theory for quite some time. I mean, going back 12, 13 years, that the Anasazis were probably Israelites, And then God ran them out of this country. Maybe they were taken slaves. Remember Deuteronomy 28, 69, I think it is, somewhere right in there, 65. It says, if you sin again, I will take you into Egypt by ship. They walked the first time they went into Egypt, you know, with Jacob and 70 people, and then God said, Obey me or else. Next time I'll take you in ships. Now, was the original Egypt over here? The original promised land here? And when they sinned, they were taken to the Middle East, a new area that was being developed by ship. They just simply disappeared from here. Now, is it only coincidence But that is about the time the archaeologists began to find evidence of Israel in the Middle East. Nothing before that. Now that's both sides of the question. Those who would minimize the Bible and those who try to make archaeology fit the Bible. They want that. But they can find no evidence prior to that. Now these are leading archaeologists, as I said. They're the people who have taken the Middle East apart, brick by brick, stone by stone, dirt shovel by shovelful. And they're eminent scholars. I believe the Bible. I believe that when God told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land you are standing on, I will give to your seed forever. And we are his seed. And here we are. So I believe they originated here. They were taken over there, and finally God allowed us, about 2,500 years later. We've used that 2,520, Mr. Armstrong used it, to come back to the Promised Land. Some people say, "Well, they couldn't have gone over there. How did those man apes get across the ocean?" <laughs> we take it for granted. And we buy into evolution sometimes, brethren. For some reason, we think those people back there weren't as smart as we are, and they couldn't have built boats. I am here to tell you, those people were smarter than we are. They hadn't eaten pig for thousands of years. They hadn't degenerated for thousands of years. They couldn't build boats that big? What did Noah do? People have used the argument. They, they couldn't have come over here. They didn't have boats that would handle it. Archaeologists and historians have proved that they had boats far superior and far larger than the ones Columbus came over here in after the Dark Ages. They'd lost a lot of that. Noah built a big boat. And you say, well, that took him 100 years. Well, he may have been doing it alone. Now if one man can build a boat that big in a hundred years, conversely, could not a hundred men build a boat that big in one year? Now maybe the ratio wouldn't be exact, and he may have hired some day laborers. I don't know exactly what the story was. But those men, those people, were very intelligent. Name me one writer that could write what David wrote in the Psalms today. Who had an understanding of the stars and the heavens, and they could sail by the stars and the heavens. Maybe a writer today who could write the things that Job wrote. Those people had understanding, far beyond our understanding. Maybe in science and technology and so on, were beginning to get to the point they were, I don't know. But even the world, if you get those who have studied it, and that's the point I want to make, understand that everything that's believed by the general populace of the world about the Middle East is simply not so. The record is simply not there. So, we can go on in ignorance if we wish. Why is it that they have made so many tunnels under that Jerusalem? Because they believe from the records, from the things they've read, from the things they've discerned in archaeology, they believe that the temple treasures and all those things should be under Jerusalem. And they have dug and dug and dug, and it's a honeycomb of tunnels under there, and they have found nothing, absolutely nothing, that indicates an Israelite presence before 1200 B.C. Now, after that time, they find evidence of Israeli presence. And I won't dispute that. Because my own thinking is that Israel was not there before 1200 B.C. And when they left here, they went there. Where did these Anasazis go? This should become quite obvious. They left here about 12, 1300 B.C. and they showed up there about the same time. I don't think you'll find pig bones in these southwestern desert uh, ruins either. I've been to quite a few of them. I've never seen a pig bone exhibit yet. I don't know. Maybe they just didn't put it in there. So is the Bible accurate when it says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given this land, the land they stood on, the land they slept on? They said he would give their seed forever. And when it was written to those sons, it says, These are the things that will befall you in the latter days. Makes it very clear. So why aren't we in the Middle East? If that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's seed forever, why are we here? You know, what I was told in the Methodist Church when I was seven years old doesn't hold much water. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the Middle East. Everybody believed it. They'd grown up believing it. Now, is that evidence? Or is that just someone telling me what they believed? They didn't quote the Bible, nor did they quote archaeology. They just believed that because that's the way it was when they grew up. But is it the true story? Well... If you can't believe archaeologists or the Bible, then I guess you'll just have to wait and see. But there's not the evidence that people assume there is that that is what they say it is. It's just not there. Especially prior to 1200 B.C. But I believe that David and Solomon probably went back and forth across what they called the river, which was not the Euphrates, but the Atlantic Ocean. This is the lost land of Atlantis over here, across the Atlantic. That's how it got its name. It was from the people of Atlantis over here across the sea. So it doesn't strain me at all that there was an Israelite presence here, and there was an Israelite presence over in the Middle East, but David and Solomon, all those people would go back and forth. I go back and forth to see my kids and people I know across this country. I've gone down to Chile to see some of my kids when they were down there. Now, if we had relatives over in that area, why wouldn't we have gone back and forth? Why wouldn't we have traded back and forth? So even though David, Solomon, may have been over here. Doesn't mean they couldn't have gone over there. I think Steve Collins pretty well established that Christ was here. Only he thought that he came from there and visited over here. But I think we're seeing just the opposite. He was from here and went and visited over there. But he shows the presence in the history and the legends of the Mayans and various other ones that Christ was indeed in North and South America. And I believe that that is true. The only question then is where did he originate? And I think that that question is being pretty well answered for us. All right, let's drop that and move on. It is, in a sense, a subplot to this series on our fathers, but it is a very important subplot. Because if you're going to following the steps of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you need to know where they walked. Very important. And if you're going to be in the place where Christ is going to return, you better know where he was to start with. Otherwise, you might be in the wrong continent, doing the wrong thing at the right time. Could be a problem. I want to turn to the book of Hebrews now, chapter 11, and summarize all this. And let's understand, I may have mentioned it here and there through this long series, but I want to focus a little bit on it now as we go into this chapter of the types of the past. Because it is very important for us. Abraham was a type of God the Father. Now why is it that God would want us to go back and study our fathers here at the end time? because what they did and what they represented are very important for us today. God caused certain things to be acted out in history on a human level. And we'll see even in Hebrews 10 from what Paul says that clearly Abraham was a type of God the Father. Christ himself was a type of Christ. I mean, Isaac was a type of Christ, that's what I'm trying to say. And I think that we in the church have realized that for a lot of years, that Abraham was called upon to sacrifice his son and went through everything but actually slicing his throat and God stopped it. Because it was only a type and it was not to be carried out completely as the father and the son would do later on, and he would actually be killed, as he was. Don't let anybody tell you that Christ was not crucified. He was. He died at age about 33 and a half. His blood was sprinkled on the ground for forgiveness of your sin and mine. And I don't care what early Christian records might seem to indicate. There are some early records, but were they Christian? Here's a question. Because as we know, the church that we studied in the New Testament from 31 A.D. up to about 100 A.D. was totally different than what emerged after 100 A.D. with the Catholics and so on. It changed dramatically. And the true Christians basically had been killed turned away or destroyed in some form or fashion, and out of that came the Catholic Church. And they had their own agenda. They would not accept the true Christ and accepted a false Messiah and reconstituted and changed and rewrote history, had book burnings from 100 A.D. forward through the Middle Ages to keep people in the dark, and then feed them what they wanted them to hear. I believe Satan was behind the Catholic Church all the way and all of its Protestant daughters. They are satanic religions. They are not of God whatsoever. And Satan intended to counterfeit everything God has done. Now, we have understood that, haven't we? I remember hearing in the 50s and 60s That Satan was a great counterfeiter, and that Satan counterfeits everything God does. That is something that was espoused by Herbert Armstrong in the ministry worldwide, decades ago. Haven't you all heard that Satan's a counterfeiter? If you've been around that long, yeah? Now, wouldn't he counterfeit Christ with a false messiah? Wouldn't he, if he could, set up a counterfeit history, a counterfeit country, a counterfeit city, and get the world to believe it? And yet now only a few are beginning to understand true history and where the Bible setting truly was. It does not strain my mind at all to consider that Satan might have counterfeited virtually everything that God has done and will do. We know the millennium is coming. The Bible makes it very clear, a thousand-year reign of Christ, a peaceful time. And we also know that the New World Order, the people behind it and Satan himself are going to set up what they're going to proclaim as the beginning of the millennium with a false messiah. So it doesn't surprise me in the least that they might set it up in a false land, a false place does not bear the name of God at all, and where the people of God are not today. A few Jews may be in that city of it, that nation of Israel, most of the Edomites, but none of the rest of Israel, and it is not a doubly fruitful land. It is not what was promised to our fathers. So Abraham is a type of the father. Now let's look briefly here in summarizing at Abraham's character. Here was a man of incredible patience, wouldn't you say, who didn't have his first child till he was 99 years of age, 100 years of age. And he had been waiting and waiting and waiting for that to happen because God had promised it. Now God shows himself throughout the scriptures to be very, very patient, incredibly patient. What about the faithfulness? God shows his faithfulness throughout the Bible. He has given us the Bible as an indication of his faithfulness to us. But in spite of the counterfeits and all the things that Satan has done on this earth, we still have this word to look to and believe in. So he's been faithful in getting his word to us. Sure, there are some clerical errors, some translation errors, a couple of verses that have been put in on purpose, but they're easily ferreted out and can be disproved. The Bible essentially can be believed. And in it... It talks about the end times and things that would transpire. Even this financial collapse we're going through right now is predicted in Zephaniah 1, is predicted in Isaiah 5, and many other places that we have been to and studied. It's all through there. So God was pretty faithful, wasn't he? Saying that the end time, Israel would depart from God and become an idolatrous, culturally bankrupt, immoral people. And that he would destroy us by means of a financial crash, spoken of in Revelation 18 as well, where all the merchants of the earth are going to wail that we don't buy their products anymore, and how we've made them rich. The Chinese have a trillion dollars in cash. We have made them quite wealthy. And on and on the story goes. Now, has God been faithful in telling us in His Word, by His prophets, long ago what would transpire today? Yes, He has. Abraham was a faithful man as well. He was also not a rebel. When God said, take your son and go up and sacrifice him on an altar, He didn't rebel. I believe in God. You know who else believes in God? God does. He's alive. He's vibrant. He's full of feeling and emotion. And when he says something, he believes it. And he causes it to happen. Abraham was of the same mold as the Father in heaven. And when the Father in heaven said, You, Father Abraham, take your son up to Mount Moriah and cut his throat as a sacrifice to me, Abraham saddled his ass and took his son and went. It's that simple. See how he's a type of the Father? He honored God. He didn't just give tithes of his agricultural produce. He gave tithes of the spoils of war as well. He gave God honor. The book of Malachi talks a lot about that, where he says, Am I a father? Then where is my honor? That is a principle that is through the Bible with Abraham, Jacob, and others. And it's one that is very important because it shows honor to our Father in heaven. And Abraham, as a type of the father, did that to show his honor. Now God says he is merciful, doesn't he? His mercy endures forever. There's a part of Abraham's character we may not have really focused on, but we did go through the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how he was saying, well, you know, if there's 50 men that are good there, will you save the city? And, you know, he brought it on down. Was Abraham merciful to those people? Now God went ahead and destroyed them. Now, does that mean that his mercy endures forever or not? Yes, it does. Because now we understand the plan of the resurrections and how those men of Sodom and Gomorrah, having been destroyed, are going to be brought up as human beings and have an opportunity to learn the truth under the right conditions and ultimately be saved. Now, that is showing God's mercy over a long period of time, isn't it? might not have been a, appeared very merciful to Lot sitting back there and watching the flames devour those people. Might have seemed pretty dramatic to him. But when you understand the whole picture, God had in mind to save them, not destroy them. But they needed to be destroyed then because of the influence they were having on others. So in the end, it all turns out right. But Abraham's, he, Abraham understood the laws of God. Abraham understood that homosexuality is wrong. And yet he pleaded for those people not to be destroyed because he had kindness and mercy in his heart for them. A good and true emotion. And God himself showed his mercy in dealing with Abraham. Well, if you find that many, or you find that many, or that many, yeah, I'll, I'll you, of course God knew how many there were. None, other than Lot. But look at the characteristics of the man's character. And then Isaac is something else, too. There are not many of us as sons. If our father had said, Son, we're going up on the mountain today, and then when we got up, we might not have told him the whole story, but when we get up, there, and then he says, lay down on these rocks, and uh, he starts getting his knife out and wetting it up a little bit. Most children would rebel about that time, as they were being scrapped to the rocks. Hey, Dad, wait just a minute, you know, this is me now, I'm your son. With probably more emotion than that. Wouldn't go over too well. Isaac was truly An individual who honored his father in heaven and his father on earth. And he understood the implications. And he said, so be it. Yes, dad. What incredible control and character that was. Now we are here, upon whom the ends of the earth have come. And we need to be looking back to these men and having the same courage, the same willingness to sacrifice, the same character, patience, faithfulness. Because Christ himself said, Will I find faith when I come to the earth? These men walked by faith. Jacob was a type of who? Israel. Israel became what? The bride of Christ. Later divorced because she was unfaithful. But Jacob himself was renamed Israel because he prevailed with God, fought all night, held on, wouldn't turn loose of God. Now, aren't we supposed to endure to the end? Yeah, we are. Blessed are those who endure to the end. Jacob is one of our fathers who endured and hung on and would not let go. What an incredible example he was. And from Jacob, it expanded out into 12 tribes, and 12 times 12,000 is 144,000, that we find in Revelation 7 and 14. So the type is there all the way through, of the father, and then the son Isaac, and then Jacob representing Israel the bride. We examined Joseph, because he was one of the sons of Jacob, and we find that we are of Joseph seed, direct line, and we examined his positive, can-do approach to life. But it was not negative. But wherever he went, whatever circumstances he found himself in, he picked up the people around him. He made them change their whole attitudes. We talked about how people in prison become very negative, and there they learn better the tools of their trade, how to lie, cheat, steal, and defraud from other experts in prison. It wasn't Joseph's approach. He actually changed those people's minds and emotions to the point that the prison keeper just said, You take charge. You're incredible. You're amazing. Now that's one of our forefathers. An incredible positive attitude. He was going to make things work. He was an absolute optimist. No negativity in him. Wherever he went, whether it was prison, Pharaoh's court, the dungeon, he picked people up. We need to be like our father Joseph. And then from Joseph came Ephraim and Manasseh. And we went through to show that Ephraim would have double fruit. The God in Jeremiah 31 said, He raised Ephraim to the level of the firstborn, and Ephraim, in particular, is our father. And the prophecies don't come down any further than that, but they focus on Ephraim, because Ephraim is the key nation in the world today, and what is going on. And we are residents of Ephraim. So when we read about Ephraim, then, in the Bible, we're reading about what would befall Ephraim in the end times, and how things would be, and where we would be. We've had double inheritance, both in the nation and the double fruit that this nation has produced, and in the church. Remember, I've referred to a time or more to the church of the firstborn. Let's go for a moment to Colossians one, and here I want verse eighteen speaking of Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he is the firstborn of many brethren, as we find in other places. So he is the head of the church, and he is the firstborn. But let's go over to Hebrews 12 now and put it together with that. And here I want verse 23. Hebrews 12, verse 23. To the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn. God calls the end-time church, the early New Testament church, and including us, the church of the firstborn. Ephraim became the firstborn of the children of Jacob and of God. Now where do we find the church of the firstborn in the end times? right here in America, is where it started, southwestern United States. God's mind is incredible, isn't it? That he can cause all these things to come together, that he vanquished Israel from this promised land and sent them elsewhere into captivity by ship, and later on they came back by ship when the ban had been lifted 2,500 years later. And we've resettled this land And here is where God began the end-time work of God. And it spread as a low vine, as Ezekiel 17 shows, around the world. But it had its roots, and they turned inward to Herbert Armstrong and not to God. As the analogy there, the parable and the, uh, what's the other word, the two things that Ezekiel 17 is. They can only be understood in today's light. And God was unhappy with that. He wanted our roots to turn to him. So he destroyed that. And now he's going to pluck a twig from the top of the high cedar, that says at the end of that chapter, and he's going to start over. And we have to turn our roots not to some physical leaders, but to God himself. And that will be a significant upgrade over turning our roots to Herbert Armstrong. If you don't think that happened, examine the churches today. They still preach Herbert Armstrong almost as much as they do God. They've made an idol of the man. That's sad. He was one God used. But we weren't to turn to him, we were to turn to God. And he protested. He'd say, don't believe me, believe your Bible. Believe God and worship him. And they even started, boy, when he'd come in, there was all kinds of flapping and, and all that kind of stuff, and every once in a while he'd say, stop it! I'm not God! We don't want to go there in any form or fashion. But the splinter groups, many of them, are still there. They've never given it up. They've never moved forward. It's sad. Herbert Armstrong left us some good advice. Don't believe me, believe your Bible. Now they still believe him, but they haven't stuck their nose in this book. And they haven't progressed. And that's sad. But the one that they look to the most, they don't believe and won't follow in his advice. Now, there are answers in this book that he didn't have. And we're discovering them. We are the church of the firstborn, and we're in the country of the firstborn, of Ephraim. Of all places. That's where the church of the firstborn began in the end time. Where the seed of Abraham reside today. Now, let's go back to Hebrews 11. We're right in the neighborhood now. And I think this is a good way to summarize this series and and bring an end to it. We call this the faith chapter, and indeed it does show the faith of our fathers. And that is the one thing that Christ didn't mention, will I find love when I return? He didn't say, will I find hope when I return? He said, will I find faith when I return? So faith, at the end time, is going to be a very rare commodity. Very rare. And Abraham was the father of the faithful, as said in Scripture. We're to look to him, because that is one of the things we are going to be very, very short of at the end time, is faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to believe that until you you produce the evidence. Faith does not require evidence. Do we realize that? Now, I like evidence, too. The Missourians brag about it. Show me, state. I want to see all the evidence. But God caused Abraham and others to do things when they did not have any evidence. They simply believed God. God said, you're going to have a baby? They believed it. Going to wait a long time for it? They believed it. Now, sometimes the acceptance was not easy. Sarah even laughed. Yeah, right. I haven't had that visitor in years. Abraham kind of chuckled too, you know. I'm not able. But they wound up believing it. That's incredible when you think about it. What if we had some 80-year-old couple and God appeared and said, you're going to have a baby? Okay, tell me another one. Doesn't happen. They weren't 80 at that time, but I just picked a number there. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You hear of it, you wish for it, but you don't have any evidence of it. That's a tough one. Faith in itself is hard to believe in and to have, right from the get-go. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Our fathers, our elders, they obtained a good report. He shows those stories now. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, by Christ himself, not just by amoebas coming together out there somewhere or a big bang or whatever theory they might come up with. But God himself is alive. We accept that on faith. I wasn't there, were you? Job wasn't there, and God used that on him. Where were you, Job, when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I created Leviathan and all these beasts of, that are there? Oh, well, I guess I wasn't born yet. Made him feel pretty small. Finally, got, God finally got his point across to Job of what it was all about. Took a lot of boils and a lot of trouble, children all dead, wife telling him curse God and die, and sitting on a pile of boils. Finally, God got Job's attention. Now, what is it going to take for him to get the attention of the world, of the church, and of you and me? God killed off everything except the ditchy wife that Job adored flocks and herds, children, everything, gone. And his own health disappeared. He's going to do the same thing to the world here at the end. Everything is going to disappear. That's what is required to humble people, to get them to actually listen. Only a very, very few will pick up this book and read it and listen to it, and believe it, and live by it, and do the things it says for them to do. There were things that this book says to do, and I read over them for decades. Never understood them, never understood how they could possibly apply to me. They must have applied to some ancient Israelite or something, or didn't even realize at all what it was saying. And then when we began to focus on it, it says, do this, 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 and this. And, oh, I guess I better go do that. <laughs> and didn't we? Haven't we? Aren't we? Won't we? You people responded. And you know what? There are going to be some more people that do. There's some more people that are going to see God's hand in the things that are about to happen. They're going to see Satan's hand in a big way, and then they're going to see God's hand in a smaller way, because it isn't time for the big way yet. And they're going to come and build his temple. They're going to have faith that God is working. They will be able to see some evidence. Now, you can be doubly blessed by obeying before you see God's hand in a way that other people would recognize it. Now, I see God's hand in what you are doing. I see it. Because I see the things in the scripture God said would have to happen, and I see you people beginning to do some of it. Sometimes we have to move forward when we can't see all the answers. That's what this chapter, that's what this series is all about. I'm looking at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on down the line. By faith, by the evidence of things not seen, Some people are going to sit back and say, show me, I'm going to wait and see. You may wait and see, and you may also wind up dead. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God made them out of bara, nothing caused them to appear. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaks. We're to learn from Abel. When God said sacrifice a certain kind of thing because it was important to him, Abel did it. Cain said, my stuff's just as good as your stuff. Character as good as sheep any day. And he got in trouble with God because he had his way of thinking, his way of doing things, and he would not accept what God said. So he offered his carrots and turnips or whatever he offered, thinking that God would bless him as well. But God wouldn't and didn't. And he blessed Abel. And then Cain killed Abel. The righteous one died. And the rebel lived. That's okay. Abel's going to be in the first resurrection. I seriously doubt whether Cain will be. Now, he may be in the second. He never was converted. I don't know that. That's up to God. God testified of Abel's gifts, and he speaks, even though he's dead. By, Enoch, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. At that time, God moved him to another place. There were letters that came from him, so this isn't the immortality of the soul. No one has ascended to heaven except he which came down, it says in Acts, not even David. Because God removed him. For before his removal, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. That's something we want to do. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. We, brethren, must walk forward in faith, believing God will take care of us. That's why he tells us, fear not, be of good courage to be strong and work. That's what he tells us. Now, I know that this nation and this world is about to implode upon us. And you know What? We're vulnerable out here. We may not be in the city where we'd be more vulnerable. But when they overrun this country, if we did not have God's protection, there is no place we could hide from what's coming. It's impossible. There are people who have their plans. They're going to go up in the mountains and they're going to eat deer. You know, or whatever their plan might be. Are they going to have enough guns and ammo to shoot everybody that darkens the horizon. They've all got different plans and their plan. But it won't work. The only possible protection is from God. Now I've read that he's going to have villages that will build Jerusalem and be Jerusalem with men and cattle. And that his faithful people will build those villages and live there and that they'll build a temple. They'll build Jerusalem at the end time. And that is going to be hated by the whole world and by the beast to come and the false prophet with him, the two witnesses of Satan. There's another counterfeit. Now, are we going to fear or walk forward and do God's work in faith? Not able to see all the answers. I don't see all the answers yet, do you? I read in the Bible what must be done. I have to move forward and do my part to accomplish it. That's all. Walk forward without seeing the answers, not knowing where they're all going to come from. I have to believe God. When God says, I will give to your seed, as the sands of the sea, the land you now lie on or walk on, I must believe that. because God said it. I don't need to find evidence as I initially thought. Well, all we have to do is dig a hole and find out. That's true. We haven't finished digging the hole yet. But since then, I've seen an awful lot of corroboration in the Bible and even in archaeology. But what they say is there isn't there. And what the Bible says is here is here. And I will walk forward in faith until the evidence appears. You don't need faith once the evidence is there. When Sarah started getting bigger and bigger and bigger tummy, she didn't need faith anymore, did she? Unless she had bad gas. Well, she knew she was pregnant. You need faith until it happens. Then you have evidence. Evidence. God wants us to walk blind, brethren, to some degree. See why faith is so hard to come by? God wants you to walk blind, not seeing all the evidence. Maybe any of it in some cases. That's hard for people to do. That's why it's so rare now. There's just a handful of examples of it here in this book. It's impossible to please him without faith. Now, you can do all you can to have love in your heart. You can do all you can to serve your neighbors. You can do all you can to be nice, to be hospitable, to be this, to be that, or whatever you find in the Scriptures you ought to be. But it doesn't matter all that you do. If you do not have faith, you will not be able, ultimately, to please God. Bottom line. I don't know how you'd mistranslate that. I don't know how you'd misunderstand it. Faith, hope, and love, these three. Now, the greatest is love, yes. Love may be the greatest, but faith is the rarest. And you have to have the love of God, obedience to his ways and his laws. And that is how love is defined. This is the love of God that you keep his commandments, not some feeling inside you, some emotion. It's the keeping of all God's commandments, his statutes, his laws. That is how God defines love. Faith is something you have to walk by. We don't always see the blessings from God, do we? He's promised them. We go through Isaiah, through these scriptures, and it talks about all these blessings He's going to bring to His end-time church. Do you see them yet? Maybe in a very small way, but you don't see them the way Isaiah describes them, do you? I haven't yet, but you know what? I got to believe it. God wrote it. It's got to come. It will happen. Will I be there to enjoy it? I have to believe it and walk forward. So do you. Or we cannot please God. And it won't come to us unless we walk the walk and do the things that God says. That proves our faith. Are we willing to do what God says even though we do not yet see the answer? We've obeyed a lot of God's laws and not yet seen the blessings, have we? What about healing? I saw lots of healings in the 50s and 60s. I saw some in the 70s, a few in the 80s. I've seen a few even recently. But not like Isaiah describes in Isaiah 35 about the lame walking and the deaf hearing and the blind seeing and all those things. Now, part of that is spiritual vision and hearing, but part of it's physical. haven't seen that yet. So God promises, he is Yahweh, Rofika, our healer. But we don't see too much evidence of it at the moment, do we? So does that mean we just go to the doctors instead, since we don't see the evidence of God doing all these healings yet? I don't think so. Asa died because he went to the doctors when he was diseased in his feet. He didn't even have cancer of the lungs. He was diseased in his feet. I don't know what it was. But God said he died because he went to the physicians. If he'd gone to God, he would have been saved. That's the implication there. Now, I have health problems, and you have health problems. Most of you. You know what? I've been anointed many times in my life. Sometimes I've been healed and sometimes I've not. And I still have some physical problems, and as I get older they'll probably get worse. Until God intervenes. Now I'm going to say because God didn't heal me 2 years ago, 5 years ago, 10 years ago, that God is not our healer. Did Abraham and Isaac, I mean Abraham and Sarah give up because she didn't get pregnant the first night? No. They waited patiently. And they waited decades trying with no results. Decades. But then it happened. God fulfilled his promise. Now, when are you going to give up on God? After a week, two weeks, three weeks, month, year, ten years? 20 years, and they say, well, God didn't fulfill his promise, I'm not healed. Apply that to any subject. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. If he says do it, do it, and do it until he fulfills his promises. He that comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He never ever promised when he would heal or bless for tithing or anything else. He just said, do it and wait until he himself saw fit to answer and do His part. But that's what faith is, doing your part when you see no evidence of God doing His part. Do we understand, can we comprehend, that we do our part as long as we draw breath on this earth, and that God will do His part when He so chooses And all the time in between is a trial and a test of what? Our faith. And if we give up, and we give up on God and say, well, he doesn't do what he says he'll do, then that shows that we do not walk by faith, and we need to repent and walk by faith and believe God. And that he will do what he says when he is good and ready. And we cannot dictate to him when he will do something or else we will just take our marbles and go home. Let's understand, brethren. I'm not angry. But God means what he says. We can either believe him and do what he says to do and walk by faith until he does it and accept that this life is a trial and a test of our faith as Abraham and Sarah had to accept that. Isaac had to accept that, didn't he? That God knows what he's doing. He must have had a lump in his throat that was about to be sliced, but he believed God. And he believed it would turn out right for him in the long run. He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now, when did he say that He would turn it around and bless us? When we seek Him with our whole heart. Essentially what Paul is saying right here, diligently seek Him. How much of the church today is scrambling through this word and diligently seeking God? I'm afraid it's a very, very small percentage. Now, if we are a part of that percentage, we need to rectify it. Fix it. Get it done. Get on it. Diligently seeking. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, I'm going to flood the earth. Noah said, well, you say you're going to flood the earth? You must be going to flood the earth. God said, build a boat. Noah got out his hammer and saw and started building a boat. Moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house. Took him a hundred years. So what? You know what? He believed that flood was going to come. Year one came, year two, year three, 99 bottles of beer on the wall. Knock one off. What do you got left? He believed that whole time, moved with fear, that God was going to flood the earth. Now you have believed for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever, when you saw the Scriptures, that God is going to destroy society and culture as we know it today. Are you still working on that ark every day? How hard are you working on your ark? Our vote of safety is Christian character and faithfulness to God and walking in faith with God toward the promises He's made. And He said He would protect us, that He would prepare a place for us and that Satan would send an army after us, that if we would leave without going back in our house or whatever, he would save us when the abomination is set up. I believe that virtually all my life. Do I work really hard every day at preparing myself to be accounted worthy of that? Sorry to say, I don't do it every day to the degree I ought to. I do not seek God every day with my whole heart. I have to repent. I have to look at myself and say, man, how will you ever make it? And the only way I'll make it is by the grace of God and moving forward, believing Him when He says He will take care of me. He prepared an ark for the saving of his house. By the which, by building this ark for a hundred years and not seeing many rain clouds, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I'm going to build this boat whether I see a rain cloud or not. You know, if it's, I bet, I'll bet every time it thundered, old Noah was looking over his shoulder and he worked harder. Got to get the same built. Got to get it built. Maybe this is it. Man, I still got so much to do. The thing won't float yet. Maybe it rained an inch. Sun would come out. How many times? This is the gun lap, brethren. Oh, it didn't happen. Relax. Two months later, it's the gun lap. Here we go again. Hadn't happened yet, has it? Well, I think it's starting to happen now. I think it's here. We see, we're see beginning to see evidence of these prophecies being fulfilled, aren't we? The evidence is now appearing. All right, let's get down to where we were starting to go. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obey. And he went out not knowing where he went. God didn't give him a map. Didn't give instructions. He just says, go find the place. Okay. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. There's four directions to go. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. Didn't even know at first that it was the land of promise. As in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. We reviewed that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got the same promise. The land you're standing on or sleeping on, I will give to you and your seed forever. And here we are. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, people build cities, don't they? Isn't that Jerusalem in the Middle East built by men? Wouldn't it surprise people, and won't it, when they realize that the first original Jerusalem has 12 geological foundations under it? Amazing. Right up here. 12 foundations, geologically speaking. What men build on top of those foundations, men build. But you don't have that geological formation over in the Middle East. Simply not there. Doesn't exist. Through faith, also Abraham herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was way past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. I'm going to get pregnant. I know I'm going to get pregnant. It's going to happen. I'm going to have a baby. God said so. After she got done laughing, she believed it. That's a tough one. She was postmenopausal by decades and still believed she was going to get pregnant. Therefore spring there even of one, and him as good as dead. In that category. No life there. So many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. And never has that been truer than it is this very day. Over 300 million of us here. You can't see that many stars in the heaven by the naked eye, by any means. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now, he did move to what would become Jerusalem up here. But the real promises he did not receive. He died. See He saw them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from where they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But they went forward looking for God's country, not where they came from. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Revelation 21 144,000, the bride of Christ come down as the city to this earth, the beginning of the millennium. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Understand what that was to Abraham. He had waited all those years for Isaac. Then Isaac grew up, and God said, Through Isaac, your seed is going to be like the stars of the heavens. And then God told him to go kill him. This would strain your faith if you didn't have a lot. When he was tried, he offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Language of the Father and the Son, Christ. Of whom it was said that in Isaac shall your seed be called. He remembered the promise from God, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. From whence also he received him in a type or a figure as a type of Christ. Now Christ died, but then he lived three days later, didn't he? He literally died and was resurrected. So the type is there. But Abraham believed God to the point, he said, Well, okay, if you say cut his throat, I'll cut his throat. I believe you'll resurrect him, because you said through him, I'll be blessed. Now that took a lot of belief, a lot of trust, a lot of faith. These men are being held up to you and I here at the end, or to you and me, to use correct grammar, as examples for us to ponder, to think about. And will God find faith on the earth? By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, if you promise your children that they will have many, many children and grandchildren, and that they'll inherit the land, and that at the end time you could talk about the characteristics that they would have, and that this son, Jacob, would be blessed, and that Esau, his brother, would not, and that at the end time that Esau would have a yoke around Jacob's neck and be a part of destroying Jacob, and that God would then destroy Esau for what he had done to Jacob. Now, can you sit down with your children and tell them what's to come in their lives like that? No, you can't. Now, why could Jacob do that? Or Isaac do that with Jacob and Esau? Because God had told him that's the way it would be, and he would offer those blessings knowing that God would back him up and that it would happen. And today it has happened. And we, if you read about Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh and Genesis, we are enjoying exactly the blessings of Ephraim. Exactly. He spoke of it thousands of years ago. And here it is. Incredible. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. He believed that his children would do what he said and bring him up out of Egypt. He believed because they were obedient children, and he had faith and trust not only in God, but in his children. Then it goes on to Moses. We didn't cover Moses, we didn't cover David, and a lot of people. I'm running out of time just as Paul was getting his fingers tired writing all this. He goes through Moses, how Moses walked by faith, didn't see the answers, went out to the Red Sea, God opened the sea, they parted, Egypt was destroyed, right up here near Sinai. Then he talks about even Rahab. Now you and I may not put ourselves in the category of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh. We not, may not put ourselves in the category of Moses, or David, or Jephthah, or Gideon, or any of these that are mentioned here. But couldn't any of us, all of us, be as good as Rahab? She was just a mattress back harlot. But she believed the spies. She believed they came from God, and she acted on that belief. You protect my house, and I'll see that you go to safety. Rahab is listed among the faithful. She will be in the first resurrection as part of the bride of Christ Emmanuel, the King, if she's listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the faithful. Maybe God did that so that we, no matter what we are, what we've been, what we've done, can have some hope and faith and trust that if we will obey God, it doesn't matter our background, it doesn't matter our sins, they can all be forgiven. They can all be wiped out in the blood of our Savior. And that we can be a part of the kingdom of God. Because Rahab is one of our mothers. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are our fathers, Rahab's one of our mothers. Mother Rahab, she believed God. Now, is there hope for you? Is there hope for me? Yes, there is. Now, we're to be as much like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as we can be. But he drove Rahab in here, I think, for a very, very important reason. And that is that we all recognize that we're a long shot from being what we need to be. But we can become what we need to be. And even the belief of the lowest of human beings, a prostitute can be in the kingdom of God. There's nothing that cannot be forgiven other than turning our back on God. He goes on to mention Jephthah and David and Samson and Goliath and many others who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions like Daniel, quenched the violence of fire like the three, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, as in the case of Elijah or Elisha, or of even New Testament prophets. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Weren't delivered. Died. Killed. Isaiah may be sawn in half after being one of the kindest, gentlest writers of God. Maybe even kinder and gentler in some ways than David was, and tender. And yet he was killed very brutally. Some of them had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in half. Were tempted. Were slain with a sword wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, shipwrecked, stoned to death like Paul, and on and on it goes. But they went forward in faith, believing in God and believing in the promise of the eternal heavenly city and eternal life. And that is what keeps us going. Without vision, the people perish. We need a vision of what these people did and of what we must do in order to reach that heavenly Jerusalem. Of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Are you ready? And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. All they went through, all they were looking forward to, they to this day have not received. What kind of time element are you going to put on God for healing or blessing or whatever else you think God doesn't do because he's unfaithful? Abraham is a type of God, and he was faithful, and God is faithful, and he will fulfill his promises whether you believe it or not. But he will only fulfill it in those who walk in faith, not yet having received the promise, because without faith it is absolutely impossible to please God. Therefore, we are given time to walk in faith without seeing the evidence. That's what constitutes faith. We can't give up on God, brethren, because he is faithful. The only question is whether we will be faithful or not. Okay? That's what it all boils down to. God is. Are we? These all died through faith. Received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for you and me, that they without us should not be made perfect. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Paul, and John, and Peter, are waiting in their graves on purpose, not having received the promise, because God would not give it to them until he gives it to us. Now, are we important or what? God is making all those faithful patriarchs of the past wait in their graves until we are ready. I don't care if we started out like Rahab. And God doesn't either. He only cares whether we change it and repent and come to walk as Christ walked. Now that doesn't mean we ought to go be like that and then change. You may not have time anyway. We need to obey and serve God. And wait for him, because he will make good his promise if we make good our covenant that we made with him. To give our very heart, mind, body, and soul to him. That's what our fathers did. And if we don't look to our fathers and do as they did, we will not be with them. If we will do as they did, we will be with them in the first resurrection. Now do you understand a little bit better why God said that at the end we would be pointed at our fathers, else God would come and smite the earth with a curse? It's that important to God, and it should be that important to us.